We're so glad that you're with us. If you're live at one of our campuses or watching online or maybe later, uh, thank you for spending some time with us today. My name's Taylor. I'm one of the teaching ministers. And as Rick said, I'm excited to finish out our series on unity, God's people living God's way. If you have your Bibles, turn one last time to Romans chapter 12. It's where we've been basing this series, and it's a letter written by uh, a man named Paul who was a church planter and missionary. He's writing to a group of Christians in Rome. And uh, let me give you just a little recap if, uh, if you're joining us for the very first time. And if that's you, I'm so glad you're with us. In week one, we established that unity is designed with diversity in mind. Paul's metaphor is that we are one body and yet we're made up of many parts and each part has a valuable contribution to give because God has given each of us gifts with which we can bless others. In week two, we talked about the need to give up our pride in order to give away honor to others around us. That pride is the biggest obstacle to group unity. And yet when we choose to treat honor as something that will never run out in the church and honor others, we find that there is a kind of bond fostering that is long-lasting and powerful. And this week, we are going to finish out, and I'm going to read verses 14 to 21. We're going to finish out the chapter and unpack one last theme for unity. So I'm going to begin in verse 14, Romans 12. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Amen. This is God's word for us today. This final passage in Romans 12 offers us a vision of two competing worlds. One of these worlds is one that we know very well. It's the world we live in every single day. A world in which people fight fire with fire. When people are hit, they hit back. And revenge is commonplace from neighborhood shootings to international wars. But there is another world in view in Romans 12. It is a world in which Jesus has grabbed the hearts of his people, transformed their minds and lives, and redeemed their relationships with others. And in this countercultural, supernaturally informed world, if you're taking notes, you can write this down. In this world, peace is a daily goal for Jesus' followers. This is one of the themes at the end of Romans 12. But when you hear the word peace, don't just think, you know, quiet or still, as in peaceful. 
And, and don't just think about the absence of conflict or violence. You need to understand that Christian peace is more than the absence of conflict. Christian peace is also the presence of goodwill, of compassion, of kindness and respect. And in this text, the Apostle Paul describes the pursuit of peace in two different places. One of them being the local church and the other being out in the world. And so we'll take, we'll take each in turn. Let's begin with his words specifically about pursuing peace inside the church. Hear these words again in Romans 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. So when Paul talks about pursuing peace as Jesus followers inside the body of Christ, we are urged to meet others where they are. He's really talking about empathy. See, empathy doesn't argue with someone else's emotions. Empathy doesn't start with, yeah, but. Empathy starts with affirming what someone is feeling. Joining in the pain of others or the joy of others. But we need to be ready for this. Whenever we live out these words, whenever we really will meet people where they are in the highs and lows of life, listen close, those of you who are maybe uh, type A, productive, driven people, empathy is not efficient. Empathy is messy and time-consuming, and it, it's, it, may, it may even compete with productivity, but if peace is our daily goal, then we may occasionally need to set aside our to-do list in order to just be with some people in our lives or some people in our church and be willing to let them speak honestly about how they're feeling and what they're going through and could there be a year in which we need this more. But empathy fosters a powerful bond, and you could go so far as to say this, you can't have unity without empathy. Inside God's church, if we're not willing to meet each other in the highs and lows of life, it's actually something we've done in our community group for a long time, we'll, we'll, we'll go around the table and we'll just do high-low for the week, and let people share those, those joys, and we'll rejoice with them, let people share those struggles, those sorrows, and we will mourn with them. There is no unity without empathy inside the church. But that's not Paul's only word about pursuing peace in the church. He finishes saying, live in harmony with one another. So when you hear that, I mean, I was reading that, and I'm like, okay, that sounds very nice, live in harmony. You know, it sounds very like, let's circle up and hold hands. But what does that actually mean, to live in harmony? Well, as one commentator put it, this request from Paul is not so much that we think the same thing among each other. Like, you, we don't have to think exactly the same or see the world exactly the same in order to live in harmony. But the commentator says the point is more that we would think the same thing toward one another. You and I, inside the church, we may have different social or political views and yet we can still hold each other in high esteem as brothers and sisters in Christ. See, the point of living in harmony is not that there is no conflict or no disagreement, but that we can still love and treat one another with respect in the midst of that disagreement. 
So to help illustrate this, like when, when I hear something like harmony, it, it, it automatically makes me think, you know, the, the musical metaphor that's there. So let me help explain this, and I'm going to ask uh, one of our piano players, Caleb Hinojosa, he's going to come out, come to the keys, and he, he's being a teammate and helping me out. Can we thank Caleb real quick? Okay, so uh, I, I play a little bit of guitar, but I do not play uh, piano. I just, I, I tried, I took lessons when I was young, Caleb, I just couldn't hack it. So here's the deal. All I know about piano is I know that, uh, that the, the bottom keys are your naturals. Those white keys are your natural keys, A, B, C. And then the top keys are your flats and sharps, those black keys, uh, where you've got A flat, B flat, or A sharp, B sharp, depending on the key uh, that you're in. And so, uh, and so for instance, um, do this. Will you play a natural chord? Because a, a lot of those natural keys, they just all kind of play along together. And uh, yeah, just give me, give me a nice chord. Sweet. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Nice little C. And here's the thing about naturals. Uh, if, if we all stay on the natural, then I could add this up here and I can just walk around and it's all going to be in harmony because it's in the same key, even, it's, even if it's in a different place. And, and at the same time, then you've got your, your flats and sharps. And, if, and give me one of those keys that might be maybe a little bit more um, minor key kind of thing. And so it kind of has a different tone, a different mood. And yet here I could add these kind of notes. And again, it's all going to be in harmony. And so we've got, we've got kind of a range of tones that might, res that might represent a range of emotions or a range of experiences. And yet inside the church, we can be in harmony even when we're rejoicing or when we're mourning. Give me that rejoicing chord again and give me that mourning chord again. And so we can be at different places and still live in harmony if we are living in the same key together. And the cool thing is you don't actually have to just have natural chords or just have uh, sharps or flat chords. You can mix those up. So give me a couple of, just a couple chords. Play a progression for a second that would mix those things up. Yeah. Some of the most beautiful pieces of music that all of us love, the composers are not just living in the naturals or living in sharps and flats. We know that the best pieces of music, some of the most famous and beautiful, are those that will blend the two. And when we live in harmony with one another, we can hold space for those who may be in a joyful place, may be in a mournful place. We can hold space for those who may have one lived experience or some who may have another. And we can still have an attitude and uh, uh, live in the key of love and respect toward one another. So the greater question is, if, if this is part of what it means to live in harmony, what does it mean to live in disharmony. Like what is, metaphorically, what is that note? What is that grating thing that those of you listening right now, you're like, could you stop hitting that note over and over? Because it's just like nails on a chalkboard. What is that? Well, it grates us in part because that's not what a piano is made for. A piano is made for harmony. Well, the church isn't made for disharmony or discord. It's made for unity, for harmony. So what is this? Well, here's the thing. When we go from disagreeing about what we think to disliking each other, we have gone into disharmony. When we move from critiquing someone's opinion to criticizing their character, we are in disharmony. When we stop assuming the best and start suspecting the worst, we are in disharmony. 
And this will affect us so much more than we often are willing to admit, which is why the Reverend Howard Thurman said, when I am in disharmony with another, my whole life is thrown out of tune. Hey, can we say thank you to Caleb for helping us out? So if living in harmony inside the church means that we're willing to hold space for our differences or even for our respectful disagreements, then part of it, again, is having that similar Christ-like mindset toward one another of how we see each other, first and foremost, as sons and daughters of the king, as those who have been redeemed by Christ's body and blood, as those who belong, no matter what they're going through. But Paul's words about pursuing peace aren't just inside the church. They're also about peace out in the world. And when Paul gets there in verse 18, he goes wide with it. And he says, live at peace with... If you're live at our campuses, say that last word with me. Live at peace with... Everyone. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Like everyone, everyone? Like, are you, are you everybody? Like, my grumpy neighbor? Everyone. My atheist coworker? Everyone. Activists who post things online I don't agree with? Everyone. People who don't vote like me? Everyone. People with a different sexual orientation than me? Everyone. People who don't think like me? Everyone. People who don't believe like me? Everyone. People who, and you could fill in the blank right there with anything that would be on the other side of the political spectrum or the other side of town or the other, anything that would distance you from that person and yet Paul says live at peace. You get the point. This is a hugely inclusive command. And we might listen to that and think, okay, that sounds great, but I mean, that's, how, how, how does anybody do that? I mean, how do you do that and not just become a people pleaser? How in the world this just seems like that's just, that's over the top, that's too much. And that's partly why uh, the Apostle Paul qualifies this command. And so let me show you kind of the, an earlier piece of this verse. As far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. So the Apostle Paul says, here's how you live at peace. Put the onus on yourself to make peace, not on someone else, to meet your demands. See, that's, that's part of why we struggle with making peace a daily goal. Because we often will make a list of demands or have a, a certain kind of uh, standard or thing that we want somebody else to toe the line based on what we think before we try to make that first move to be a peacemaker. And so we'll think, man, if they would just shut their mouth, man, if, if, if he would just get in line, if she would just be a little bit more polite, and we put it on someone else. But Paul says, no, 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 don't, don't start with them. Start with you. Look at yourself and ask, okay, what, what steps can I take to bring peace to this situation? What, what slice of the pie can I own in order to begin some reconciliation? Like that, that's what Paul says. And you might, you might listen and think, okay, Taylor, I hear what you're saying, and, and I've tried. I mean, I've, I, I've tried in some certain relationships with some certain people in my life. I've really tried to be the one to, to, to take it on myself to help do this, but it doesn't always work. And you're right. The Apostle Paul agrees with you. So here's the full verse in verse 18. 
If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. In that first clause, if it is possible, the Apostle Paul is acknowledging we can't always live at peace with others. We live in a fallen, broken world. And there will be some people who are not willing to pursue peace. At the end of this letter, Paul kind of gives a final warning. He's been talking to a church that's had a lot of disagreements. And they've been wrestling through a lot of differences. And he writes to give them a warning that there are some people whom they will constantly end up in disagreements and division. And Paul warns and says, look, this is, they're not serving Jesus. They're serving their own appetites. So the challenge is that, that in, a, in, a, in a broken world in which sin has such influence and the enemy keeps attacking unity, well, we're going to find that in the church and in the world, there are some who will reject peace, who will constantly attack it, who will constantly divide, who maybe living from their own pain or just choosing to manipulate others will will betray and belittle, hurt, or abuse others for their own benefit or just because they feel like it. And that's why laced throughout this passage, the Apostle Paul acknowledges this reality but also has a counter theme in the face of mistreatment. Let me show you a couple of these moments. It comes through in verses like this. Verse 14, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Then in verse 17, do not repay anyone evil for evil. See, the Apostle Paul is trying to help kind of, kind of set up and help us see, yes, in the world when we pursue peace, when we try and foster unity, there may be times where we are mistreated, where when we think the best, we may be treated in the worst kind of ways. And yet what Paul helps us see, if you're taking notes, write this down, when peace is our goal, grace is our game plan. Come on, somebody, that's good. When peace is our goal, grace is our game plan. We've got to remember, this is the way of Jesus. Our Savior came, and his goal was to be our peace, to be the one who would reconcile us with God because we were at enmity with God. The, the book of Philippians describes us as enemies of the cross. We were against God, and yet Jesus came with a goal of peace, and so grace was his game plan, to come and show compassion on people. But not only that, to show grace through his death on the cross, where Jesus Christ would take on every one of my sins, all of the ways that I had harbored enmity with God, that I had rebelled against what God wanted, that I had sinned and fallen short of God's glorious standard. Jesus took all of that to the cross in order that he might reconcile us to God and foster a peace that will last for eternity. But there is no peace without the game plan of grace. That's what Jesus is doing. That's what he has done. And now, that's what he wants to do through his church. And that's why the Apostle Paul finishes this way. Starting in verse 19, do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. But we believe in a God who is sovereign over the world and who someday will judge the living and the dead. 
a God who will set all things right. And so, leave room, Paul says, for God's wrath. But on the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. See, if you're listening, and, and maybe you're new, uh, you're new to church or new to the Bible, I'm so glad you're with us. I don't blame you if you hear that last part and you're like, okay, what's the deal about be nice to him but also put coals on him? Like, I get that, that that might sound a little confusing. What we have here is a proverb from the wisdom literature in the Old Testament. And this proverb has this notion of it kind of, it's kind of the ancient version of kill them with kindness. That through caring for others who maybe don't care for you, or maybe hate you or attack you, that in caring and showing love and kindness and acts of compassion to those people, you may put their hatred to shame. That's the notion that's in this verse. Summed up by that sen sentence, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And that is very much what we're called to. And I want you to notice at the beginning when he says, he's, he's warned it multiple times. Don't, don't curse. Don't repay evil. He says flat out, don't take revenge. Part of what we need to remember and hear very clearly is it, it is not wrong to work for setting things right in the world. It's not wrong to advocate for justice, but it is wrong to take revenge. It's wrong. It's not wrong to want to raise our fist in advocacy for the oppressed, but it is wrong to raise our fist and strike others in the process. Paul says, we're not vessels of wrath. Dishing out the vengeance of God is never on the job description of a Christian. We are not vessels of God's wrath. But instead, the theme here from Paul is that when we realize what we're really meant to be vessels for, when the Holy Spirit is active in us, we become vessels of God's mercy. Because this is what Jesus did. Like here, I want you to hear this. Because of Jesus, you are not a victim. You are a vessel. The moment that someone tries to make you a victim of their cursing, you can become a vessel for blessing. The moment that somebody tries to make you a victim of persecution, now you can be a vessel of prayer. The moment that someone tries to make you a victim of condemnation, you can show them what it means to be a vessel of compassion. Because of Jesus Christ, we are not victims. No matter how we're treated, we are vessels of God's mercy, vessels of God's forgiveness, vessels of God's kindness, vessels of God's compassion. That's what it means to be in the church, that no matter how I'm treated, what I send back is not anger, it's not wrath, it's not condemnation. What I send back fosters peace because it is love. There's lots of different examples of this, but I want to read you one from one of our most unique missionary families. Blake and Katie Birchfield, they are uh, serving a, a people group, the Lakota people. But they're not international missionaries. They are serving in South Dakota, right here inside the States, near the Lakota Reserva Reservation. Now, 
And one of the greatest needs that they've discovered for their Lakota neighbors is to have firewood in these increasingly uh, colder months, getting ready for the winter. And so the Birchfields had been working to kind of basically help uh, prepare and deliver firewood to a bunch of these neighbors who are pretty far away, and they do this free of charge. And recently, Blake shared this story. He talks about a Lakota man named Jay. And he writes, Blake writes, Jay wanted to hate me. See, Jay is a 63-year-old Lakota man. He grew up in Catholic boarding school. He has struggled with alcohol and drugs. Jay has lost a lot in his life, and he's seen many of his people suffer, and he blames white Christians for a lot of his trouble. We talked for a couple of hours while we worked together stacking logs. We talked about Lakota culture, indigenous rights, the Dakota Access Pipeline, alcoholism, and Jesus. Jay couldn't make sense of the fact that I drove 70 miles last Monday just to get him some firewood. He couldn't make sense of the fact that I cared about him even though I didn't know him. He wanted to hate me, but he couldn't. Instead, he invited me back to his home for dinner. And that's, that's a picture of what it means to be a person of peace who seeks to be a peacemaker, who seeks to go into settings both inside the church and out in the world that may be settings where there's been some disharmony and instead to, to bring a kind of harmony that's about seeing the value in others, respecting them, even in the midst of disagreement. Or to go out into the world to those who may have, like Jay, very reasonable reasons for being suspicious of the church, and yet to bring to them kindness, generosity, compassion. And what I believe that's true in Blake's story that's also true in the story of the church is that when Jesus is working through us in that way, when, when we look back to our Savior who came to earth empathizing with us, becoming fully God and fully man, to experience all of humanity, all of the rejoicing and all of the mourning. Jesus was there empathizing with us. But not only that, then he became a vessel of mercy on the cross to really bring an eternal peace that will last forever through his resurrection and through his reigning at the right hand of God. Man, when we keep that in view, we may find that Jesus grabs our hearts, transforms our minds, and redeems our relationships so that as one united body, we will be peacemakers in a world who are desperate for it. Let's pray together. Bow your heads. Mm, Lord, I just thank you so much for your mercy and grace. Uh, you're so, so good to... Speak to us through your word. So merciful to have come to us in Jesus Christ. So powerful to dwell among us as your Holy Spirit. And Lord, we ask that you would help us to receive the words from Romans 12. To be peacemakers. And to have grace as our game plan in every situation. Lead us and guide us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.